Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, the city that's in its sixth week of eat yourself stupid on king cake season, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, the city gearing up for the third annual My School is Better Than Yours Student Barber Battle, which is scheduled for Sunday. February 24th, 2019, from 5 p.m. to 11 p.m. Thank you for joining us for Episode 38, State of Texas versus Charles Victor Thompson. In the early morning hours of April 30th, 1998, Thompson kicked down the door of his ex-girlfriend's apartment in Houston, Houston, Texas. Once inside, he shot and killed Darren Kane, then shot Denise Hayslip in the face. Denise died a week later in Houston Hospital. Thompson was convicted in 1999 and sentenced to death. He won a retrial of his sentencing, and shortly after being sentenced to death for a second time, he escaped from the Harris County Jail. Since Thompson's capture in Shreveport four days after his escape, he's challenged his conviction and sentence in both state and federal court. As always, we're a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347 989 Good evening, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I just watched this uh, Netflix documentary that they did on uh, Mr. Thompson, and oh boy, howdy! He is certainly a uh, he's certainly a uh, character. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> he has he has a much different he has a much different way of viewing what happened that night for sure than anybody else that was involved in that. that, that that's for sure. Yes, he does. That's, uh, that's what we call self-serving uh, statements. And when you watch uh, I Am a Killer, you see a lot of the self-serving statements of how he wants people to believe uh, things went down that are not supported by the evidence and are refuted by the evidence that were presented at their trials. Well, and you know, one of the most heartbreaking things on that uh, show in that episode we watched was probably when, uh, you know, the son of uh, Miss Hazelip was on the show and he was listening to the mm-hmm. stuff he was saying and the dude was just like, it's not how it went down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
exactly. Where so, um, about it, things that we probably won't talk about it tonight. Where was his her son that night? You know, I don't, I didn't get a sense, uh, and I haven't seen any information. She was divorced, and it's possible the child was either with the father or living with the father. Okay, okay. I, I didn't get a, they didn't. The son was there or anything. No, he was not there. Um, and, you know, thank God he wasn't because I, I think that uh, I think that Thompson would have killed him as well. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, for a guy who says he's not dangerous, he sure, uh, he sure tends to shoot himself in the foot like we were talking about before we came on the mm-hmm. air. This guy is. Yeah. This guy does not do himself any favors at all. Yeah. But nope, I mean, I think probably the the craziest story on there, and I'm sure we'll probably get to it, or when we talk about the retrial that happened. But uh, probably the craziest moment on that whole episode that stuck with me was when the uh, foreman of the retrial said that she even went up to them and was like, "This guy ain't gonna come, you know, after me, is he?" And they all. They all uh, told her, no, 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 he's going to be on death row. And four days later, sure mm-hmm. enough, all Correct. that crap happened. Yeah. You know. Um, Thank and I think Denise Hayslip's son also mentioned he got a call and uh, they were going to mm-hmm. offer him uh, protective custody. And he was like, no. Yeah. So, but, yeah, it was. It was he, yeah. It, it was. Like No, he. I. I would. I would suspect that he may have had a gun, and may have hoped that Charles Thompson would come around. Uh, that could. That, that could be an option. That could be an option. And uh, you know, was probably maybe slightly a little disappointed that he didn't. But you know, I. Right. I think um, the impression I got of Thompson is that he only picked on people who were weaker than he was. He didn't really have the balls to go toe-to-toe with a real man. Well, I mean, let's be honest. He wanted to beat up on women. Going toe-to-toe with a real man, Darren Kane whooped his ass. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. But we got a lot to get to tonight, so let's go ahead and jump on in. Let's talk about Miss Hazelip. What do we know about her? Because I don't, in my research while watching the show, I definitely did not uh, see much about her or Darren as far as knowing much about them. Glenda Denise Hazelip was born on September 19th, 1958. Uh, I don't have a lot of information about her, but I, I think she was probably Texas girl through and through. Um, I think she may have gotten married young. That marriage didn't work out. And so when it broke down, she had a son, but she also was kind of, uh, you know, kind of living her life that she didn't get to live or the life she didn't get to live, getting married young and having a child and, and all that. Right. 
is that when she got the divorce, is that when she started uh, frequenting the dive bar that was shown in the first of the episode? That may have been around the time that she started. And, you know, like I said, I don't, I don't know what the, what the background was on her son or her, her custody of him. Um, And it may have been that his father could give him a more stable lifestyle and Denise couldn't. Um, I, Uh I don't know for sure what she did. As far as working, I I got the impression she might have been a hairdresser, right? But I'm not sure because there's not a lot of there's not a lot of information about either Denise or Darren. Really, um, there she, is. You know, I she know may have she Darren may have not been in a position. Yeah, correct. Uh, she may not have been a position. You know, she may may have been married to somebody in Houston engineer with the oil companies mm-hmm. or, you know, management in an oil company who could give the child a better, more stable life. Right. Um, and, you know, she was going out and partying, and she still, I think, had a good relationship with her son. Right, right. And that you when she tell. spent time with him, she was with him. Right, you could tell that in the uh, video that he really cared for her, or in the episode mm-hmm. that he really cared for her. And you know, uh, we can get into this whenever, uh, whenever we get to the murders. But definitely, now that I think about it, mentioning that older gentleman who said something about uh, Darren being a bartender, he actually kind of refuted uh, Mr. Thompson's turn of or sequence of events uh, just by saying, you know, just by revealing that the dude was a bartender and had to call out of work. So, you know, definitely interesting, definitely interesting. But uh, what else do we know about Darren? Darren uh, was born in June of 1966, June 9th, 1966. Um, And, oh, wait, no, that's the wrong Darren Kane. Never mind. (laughs) I don't know a lot about I know even less about him. Um, uh, but he was a bartender. He knew both Denise and uh, Charles Thompson. Uh, he, you know, frequented the same places and uh, tended bar at one of the places where they hung out. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Thompson claims that Denise and Darren were involved in a a relationship while he and Denise were still together. I do not believe that. Yeah. I believe that Denise, Denise got tired of Thompson's controlling, jealous, uh, violent behavior. Yes. And that, yeah. Um, and, and because, you know, when he when they first met in 1997, he ended up moving in with her. He didn't work, so she and her roommate were trying to pay the bills. And then he started getting possessive and jealous and, and abusing Denise. The roommate once asked him to start contributing, and he knocked her down to the ground. Wow. He used to, you know, he used to throw 
uh, he used to throw temper tantrums and break things and knock holes in the walls. And so her roommate ended up leaving and, you know, moving to a different place uh, without Thompson there. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, that it was just not, uh, it wasn't working for her. So, um, but, uh, you know, he, and Darren Kane was the opposite of that. I don't know that Denise and Darren even really had any kind of relationship. He just wanted to help her out because Thompson would not leave her alone. He would not accept the end of their relationship. And he was right, continuing right. to abuse and, and threaten her and, you know, make a general nuisance of himself. Well, and from what I understand, they were in a relationship, and that's what led to the fight uh, that happened. Uh, Apparently, you know, uh, they were fighting back and forth. Now, this is, once again, according to uh, I Am A Killer, but apparently they were fighting back and forth, and then eventually uh, uh, Charles sat down and said something like, I don't know why we're doing this here. Let's just go have a beer or something like that, and... Apparently they thought they were. No. Darren thought they squashed it. No. Crap happened. No. No. That is, again, that's serving BS to try and make it seem like there was no animosity. The night of the Mm -hmm. murders, and and we'll get to this a little bit later, at around 2.30 in the morning... Uh, or a little bit before 2.30 in the morning, Thompson called Darren Kane and threatened him over the phone. Right. Okay. So Thompson was at Denise's apartment. He was probably being violent toward her, and her friend had observed her with black eyes and, you know, evidence that he had been physically abusing her. Um, and so Kane took off work, said, I got to go, I got to go help Denise, and, you know, went to try and help her. He and Thompson did get in a fight, and Thompson lost. Um, Thompson, uh, Denise, and and Darren were outside the apartment. A neighbor observed this. Uh, Denise was out there with Darren. She was apologizing for this, you know, all the trouble. And then Thompson comes out of the apartment screaming at Denise, calling her a whore, and abusing Kane, and police had been called, so police responded. By the time the police got there, everybody was quiet, and nobody wanted to press charges. So Thompson was escorted from the property and told if he came back, he was going to go to jail. Right. Makes sense. As far as all and that goes. so there was, and and he says that the cop told both of them to leave. That's untrue. The cop did not tell Darren Kane to leave, and Darren Kane more likely than not stayed in the event that Thompson tried to come back. Right, right. So, so um, I guess what do we know about Charles leading into this? Besides, he's an asshole. Well, <laughs> he was born in 1970. Uh, I think he was pretty much raised in and around the 
Denver, Colorado area. Uh, they may have moved to Texas at some point. Uh, he was actually from a, you know, kind of an upper middle class background, but he was a, what I like to call a rebel without a clue. From an early age, he was stealing, running away, taking his parent, you know, taking his dad's motorcycle and running away, vandalizing property breaking into places and vandalizing them, uh, causing extensive damage in one instance. Um, he was a rebel without a clue. And I think he was also, it, it, this is a like an insight into his sociopathic uh, tendencies. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, nothing mattered except what Charles wanted. Right. Or what... Chucky wanted. Let's call him Chucky. Um, that was all that mattered, and he he was manipulative. And then you know he got into using alcohol and drugs, abusing alcohol and drugs. Uh, again, as a teenager, and um, he had pretty a very checkered, a very checkered prior criminal history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and an extensive prior criminal history. But the impression I get from what I read is that, you know, he was able to talk his way out of troubles whenever he put his own ass into them. Mm-hmm. And so um, that is, you know, that uh, that's uh, we see that a lot in looking at these cases, especially when it involves a partner killing the person who no longer wants to be in a relationship with them. Right. Whether it's a man or a woman. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about then the night or... Let's talk about April 29th into April 30th. Uh, Darren made a call to Tony Alfano? Yeah, Tony Alfano was a friend of his. Uh, The Houston Rockets were playing that night, and Darren called to invite Tony to come come to the bar and watch the game with him. And Tony Mm -hmm. declined. And then, as we kind of talked about a little bit a few minutes ago, uh, about 2.30, Darren called Alfano and said that uh, Thompson was bothering Denise and had just threatened had just threatened Kane over the phone. And mm-hmm. that's when Darren called out from work and went to so go help Denise. So that was the older gentleman that had indicated that he was the bartender. No, no. The, the gentleman that was interviewed owned the bar where... Uh, Darren worked. Okay. okay. Tony Alfano is a, a different person. Uh, I don't think we even saw him in the um, in the the documentary. Okay. I was just wondering. I apologize. Yeah. We digress. Yeah. <laughs> and but uh, and you know the owner of the the owner of the bar uh, did not. There wasn't any testimony or really any information from him. 
uh, as far as the criminal case or cases went. Um, but he also knew Denise, and remember, he said, Denise said she was really confident a couple of weeks before this happened. So, as I said, she ended the she ended the relationship. But he wasn't going to okay. accept the end of the relationship because it wasn't his idea. Right, and so not. he was continuing you to bother her. And, and I, I think his whole shtick on I'm a killer about working, I think that's just total bull. I don't think he works. Oh, coming to grab some water Unless water. he sold drugs. Right. Uh, because he... He had a history, you know, he had a spotty, spotty work history. Mm-hmm. And one of the issues when they first moved in together was him not working and not contributing his fair share to the bills when she, when uh, Denise had a roommate. Right. Well, like you were saying, you know, basically for anybody that hasn't seen To Catch or I Am a Killer, he basically states that he called Denise from a payphone told her he was coming to grab some work clothes, and uh, when he got there, he was trying to be quiet and got into the room, and that's when uh, she stood up, and he noticed that, uh, I guess, Darren was in bed with her and so on and so forth, and things escalated from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and again, like I said, that's uh, I think that is a- absolute, utter... Uh, crap because I don't think he worked. Right. The thing that's weird so, to me um, about is he says a lot of things that are quote unquote backed up by people, but the same people aren't backing them up on the show. So I don't know. Right. Well, he he has, you know, he has the gall to say if Denise were alive, she would testify for him. Right. And I just want to go back real quick on Darren Kane. Darren Keith Kane was born October 18, 1967. Um, And it looks like he was from Oklahoma. Uh And he's buried buried in Oklahoma. He's from Brayman in K K County, Oklahoma. Uh Uh-huh. So, um, but you know, Houston, Houston's a magnet for people from all over the right. state of Texas as well as all over the U.S. Right. So, um, anybody that uh, is, you know, any big city is obviously a uh, a uh, kind yeah. of a beacon. So. So back to back to the night of the murder. Uh, so at three o'clock in the morning or thereabouts, Kane goes to Denise's apartment, and she uh, he is there to help Denise. Uh, mm-hmm. Thompson challenges Kane Darren to a fight, and Darren hands him his ass. Uh, mm-hmm. Darren and Denise step out of the apartment. A neighbor here, she's heard screaming and she's heard yelling and she's heard a woman saying, stop, help. And she is outside getting Denise's apartment number because she probably knows, you know, where that's coming from. 
uh, to give to 911, and that's when Thompson comes out of the apartment behind Denise and Darren, yelling and screaming at Denise and calling her a whore. Um, and then police arrive. The officer said everybody was calm. Thompson had a black eye. Nobody wanted to press charges. And the officer mm-hmm. escorted Thompson from the property and said, don't come back. If you come back, we right. will arrest you. And Thompson right. leaves. And Denise and Darren go back upstairs. As I said, whatever their relationship was, he probably only stayed with her because he wanted to make sure that if Thompson came back, she was not alone. And that tells you something about Darren Kane. Um, that he's, you know, the the opposite of Charles Thompson. Well, and I don't know if anyone... Uh... I know you mentioned that. I know we both mentioned actually that no, that there's really rare information for both of these uh, victims. But I did want to mention a quick Google search, and I found something called MurderVictims.com, and it's got a little bit of information on uh, Darren and Denise, and it's even got the trial transcripts and some more information past that that the family, uh, some stuff that the family wrote on here and things like that. So. I wanted okay. to give people if they wanted to look into that. Yeah, that would be great. That would be great. Um, I came across that but didn't uh, – there was a lot of material there, and mm-hmm. I, didn't really, I didn't really take the time I should have to, uh, to read all of it. And that's, you know, that's my, my, uh, my fault. So, uh, I just wanted to give a heads up in case people wanted any background on it. Yeah, yeah, that that is great. So we're we're up to the murders. Three hours later, at six in the morning, Thompson mm-hmm. returns to the apartment and he's brought a three eighty pistol with him. Right now, I'm going to say when you come back three hours later with a pistol. You're yes, not there to talk. Uh, he but, did not. Uh, he did not call from a payphone to pick up work clothes. He did not call and tell them. Had he called and told them they were coming, that he was coming, they would have likely called nine one one and had the police there waiting for him to show up. Right. In the intervening so time, he, though, he had Diane's correct. No, no. According to that was that was after the murders. Okay. Yeah. He returns to the apartment with a three eighty pistol, kicks the door down, shoots Darren four times, and Darren was found in the foyer of the of the apartment right by the front door. All of the activity, you know, all the things that were disturbed, all the spots where there was blood was in the front of the apartment. There was nothing in the bedrooms. I know Charles Thompson says everything happened in the bedroom, but that's a lie. Everything happened in the front of the apartment. Darren Kane's body was found right by the front door. Mm-hmm. And uh, Denise Hayslip, actually, after she was shot, 
managed to get out of the apartment and started banging on neighbors' doors to get somebody to call for help. And had she been shot in the bedroom, that would have been pretty unlikely to have been possible for her. Right. Because as much as he wants to say it wasn't that bad, it was bad. Um, That's, you know, he put the gun against her cheek and pulled the trigger and did Uh extensive damage to Denise's mouth and tongue. Um, so, you know, for him, for him to say it was an accident, uh, she had powder burns on her cheek. That's not accidental. And, and, and he did that after Darren was dead. Mm-hmm. There's also evidence that when Darren was face down on the floor, Charles Thompson shot him in the back of the head. So again, this is not an accidental heat of the moment, he probably had been planning this for three hours. Okay. And um, so after he shoots Denise, he leaves. That's when he goes to Diane Zernius. He uh, he also, on the way to going to Diane Zernius, he gets rid of the gun in a pond. And then gets to her house um, you know, tells her he's he's he you know fought with Kane. He went and got a gun. He went back to the apartment. He kicked down the door, and then he killed them both. And at one point, he says, "I put the gun against Denise's cheek. I said I can shoot you too, bitch." And I pulled the trigger. Right. And that's what he tells Diane Zarnia. Then he lays down and go to sleep because poor Chucky is just exhausted. He's I probably been up all night long. Yeah, it, it is. It's very strenuous. <laughs> and so he goes to sleep for a little while. Diane Zarnia sees, you know, stuff on the news about about everything that's that's happened. And, uh, mm-hmm. and at this time, Denise has been airlifted. And, again, if you're not seriously hurt, even in Houston, they don't airlift you. They drive you to the right. hospital in the ambulance. She was airlifted from the apartment to Memorial Hermann Hospital. Uh-huh. And um, she was stable, but there was extensive swelling and extensive bleeding. Uh-huh. She basically had to remain sitting up in order to be able to bleed, to, in order to be able to breathe and to not um, in in ingest or inhale blood from her tongue. Um, They did not rush her to emergency surgery. Uh, But that may have also been because they wanted to to get people in because she had a a bullet wound in her cheek. She had broken jaw. The tongue was partially severed. And, you know, they probably wanted to mobilize as many people as they could to fix the damage. Right. And uh, so, um, meantime, at at Diane's house, Charles wakes up. He ends up calling his father, and his father gets him to turn himself in. Right. And he surrenders. 
Mm-hmm. Once he's in jail, then the wheels, the wheels in Chucky's little head start turning, and he thinks, oh, crap. I made a lot of statements to Diane that are going to keep me from being able to claim self-defense. I've got to get Diane to change her story. So he calls Diane Zarnia, and he's like, Diane, Diane, you can't tell them the things that I told you. you got to tell them this. Tell them we got in a fight. I got the gun from the closet. It went off by accident six times. Because uh, there were, oh, Darren was shot four times, but then there were missed bullet, you know, bullet holes in the in the apartment. Um, and actually, as it turns out, the gun, he actually had to reload it after he shot Darren before he could shoot Denise. So, um, and Diane Zernia, you know, I I give her great credit. She was like, I'm not, I'm not lying to the police. I'm right. going to tell them what you told me. I'm going to tell them the truth. Right. And so um, that was, you know, so then he realized he was in huge trouble because he was going to claim, I think manslaughter was initially the charge because the story he gave when he turned himself in was, excuse me, he's been having an affair with my girl. I'm jealous. We got in a fight. I, you know, I, 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 he had a knife because I think he gave that story. Probably the story he was telling on I Am a Killer, he tried to sell that one to the cops when he was first arrested. He had a knife. I got the gun from the closet. It went off by accident. I didn't mean to shoot anybody. I didn't mean to kill anybody. I swear, I'm, I'm not that kind of guy. Oh, and, um, so he knew, and then when Denise died, then it was really bad because the charges went from murder for Darren's death to capital murder no, for the death of both Darren and Denise. It was manslaughter originally, and then they had aggravated assault on Denise. And Correct, then they that came was back because that was before that was before Denise died. Right. Right. So, the question, but, question though, with, now that we're to the switch of the uh, changes, why were they originally only charging him with manslaughter? All right. All right. When you're initially arrested by police detectives, mm-hmm. they're the ones that, and with along with the district attorneys, of the potential charges. And okay. so they arrested him on manslaughter, as I said, probably because he gave him the story about Darren with a knife, getting the gun from a closet, only trying to protect himself, uh, didn't mean to shoot anybody, didn't mean to kill anybody. Okay. So that's uh, came up Probably even gave him the story about calling on the phone and going to pick up his stuff and just right. being shocked that Darren was even there because Denise said okay. he wasn't. But then once Denise also died, once Denise also died, when the district attorney presented the the evidence and the and the facts of the case to a grand jury, the grand jury indicted him for capital murder for the death of two victims in the same criminal transaction. Okay. 
now it makes a little bit more sense. So would yeah. it, if Denise had never died, <clears throat> would he never have been charged with murder for uh, for Darren? Well, Smith? he wouldn't. He he may had Denise lived, he might not have been eligible for capital murder, but it would have been first degree murder. He would have been looking at a okay. life sentence. That um, would have still went back and remanded the original manslaughter. Likely the yeah right the information that they developed during the investigation, Diane Zarnia's statement alone would have changed it from manslaughter to murder. Okay, cool. And Darren's death. Correct. <clears throat> and like I said, you know, the initial information when they first arrested him was a manslaughter case. Right. Okay. Where and all he, that went on originally was just his story. <clears throat> Correct, because they were going on his story. And then as they investigated and developed uh, information they they found you know like I said Diane Sarnia's statement alone that he left came back with a gun and kicked down the apartment door uh-huh. you know as all evidence of an intent to to kill right um, so um, so you know again he he ends up indicted for capital murder. Of course, Chucky, bless his little black heart, is just not satisfied. He thinks that even though he's been indicted for capital murder, if Diane Zernia can't testify, then it all goes away. So he tries to arrange for someone who's he's a cellmate who's being released to go out and kill Diane Zernia. Mm-hmm. And his plan in that regard is that the person who's going to kill Diane goes to the pond and gets the gun that he used to kill Darren and Denise. Mm-hmm. And then uses that to kill Diane. I can only, I'm only speculating here, but I think Chucky was going to try and frame whoever killed Diane with that gun for all three murders. Okay. By saying, oh, it wasn't me, it was him. You know, Chucky isn't very smart, but he's manipulative. So he's always looking, he's always looking for angles and always looking for ways to get his ass out the crack he put himself into. But he's not really smart enough to think through so that things make sense. Right. You know, he just wants to tell the story and have the story accepted and and then, the you know, the way he wants it. And, you know, a little control freak in there for you. So... The first guy that he wants to do the job gets out, and he decides he ain't doing it. So some time goes by, and and Diane Zernia is still alive. So he decides to try somebody else. So he gets another cellmate, and he even gives that cellmate a map. Well, that cellmate doesn't want to have anything to do with it either. 
but he contacts mm-hmm. Harris County investigators and gives them the map and says Charles Thompson wants this chick killed. So then right. the sheriff's investigators get involved and they send an undercover into the jail and the undercover has a taped conversation with Thompson in which Thompson gives a description of Diane Zarnia, that she's married, that she has a daughter, the age of the daughter, the house that she lives in. He even describes her mailbox being painted black and white like a cow. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he gives uh, a, another map or shows the agent another map where the gun is because he wants the murder done with that gun. Mm-hmm. And um, the agent leaves. Well, now Chucky's looking at another, you know, another criminal solicitation of capital murder. Right. And by the way, did you hear the uh, audio tape on Kevin yeah. or, or mm-hmm. Excuse me, I'm a killer? Yeah. Pretty, uh-huh. pretty damning evidence right there. Right. Exactly. And he also identified the first person uh, that he had hired, and so the police were able to talk to him as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they they pretty much have... Now, interestingly enough, I I don't think the state of Texas ever elected to try him on that criminal solicitation case. I don't think they did either. Could be wrong about that. So, um, but I mean, you know, he did it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, it's kind of funny because if he had advocates, uh, they would likely be saying, well, he was never convicted. But right. uh, that doesn't change the fact that he did it, sweetie. <laughs> right, exactly. So, um, so yeah, he, so he was, he was unsuccessful in having Diane Zarnia murdered. And uh, again, more power to her. She appeared and testified at trial, as did Denise's former roommate, as did Denise's neighbor, um, and they all testified to what they observed of the relationship between Denise and Thompson. Uh, Diane Zarnia testified to everything Thompson told her, and um, that you know the prosecution, the prosecution was able to locate the gun. And that was when they developed the information that Thompson would have had to reload during Mm -hmm. the murders in order to be able to shoot Darren and Denise and fire as much as he did. Right. It might have been a three eighty revolver, not an automatic. So, um, so that uh, defense challenged the prosecution's case, you know, tried to, um, well, now one of the other things I got to talk about is the, the murder for hire case came in during sentencing. It mm-hmm. didn't come in during the uh, guilt and innocence phase. But the defense tried, you know, they tried to, uh, uh, cha- you know, challenge the witness's credibility, testing the evidence from the prosecution, uh, trying to minimize the uh, 
the witness testimony and also challenging Denise's cause of death because it was Thompson's position that Denise died as a result of medical negligence. Now, while she was in the hospital, when they were getting ready to do surgery, she developed problems with her airway. They had had to, I think we talked about it, we may not have talked about it on the air. They had to go do a nasal airway rather than a, a, they couldn't do an airway in her mouth because of the damage as well as the fact that they were going to have to repair it. So they had to do a nasal airway. And she probably had swelling and bleeding that made that difficult. I mean, it's difficult under the best of circumstances because you're passing the tube into the nostril, down into the trachea. The trachea trachea and esophagus are right next to each other. As you know, if you've ever accidentally swallowed something into your airway, like a drink, you know, they're very close together. (laughs) There's there's not a lot of... Yeah, um, you're going to end up coughing up a lung. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, you know, they're they're close together, and I think with the, the injury to her mouth, getting it past that injured area is probably what the biggest challenge was. And they either did not get it into the, into the trachea, although usually you can tell when you don't have the, the airway in the trachea. Or they did get it into the trachea, but it somehow became dislodged. Maybe Denise got, you know, combative and tried to pull it out. Or she moved, or she moved her head, and it it became dislodged. And, you know, there could have been damage. Denise's family did sue for this, correct? Correct, they did. They did sue okay. for medical negligence. Apparently, she was left alone for a period of time, and it was during that period of time when the airway had a problem, resulting in loss of oxygen to her her okay. brain and her tissue. Um, and that was... Uh, you know, that was, was probably negligent. And like I said, she may have been alone, and she could have pulled it. She could have turned. Um, you know, she could have coughed and and done something that dislodged it. And nobody was there to immediately jump in and aid her. So, you know, I'm not saying they didn't do anything wrong at all. Um, they they did make a mistake that they shouldn't have made. But, um, you know, the bottom line is that if if Charles Thompson hadn't shot her in the mouth, she wouldn't have never been in the hospital. Right. At the end of the day, no matter whether they were negligent, which it sounds like mm-hmm. they were, they, it would not never happen had he not shot her. Correct. And like I said, and I don't know whether, I mean, her being left alone, 
is negligence, but it's not necessarily why the airway failed. Right. I mean, so, the airway originally failed pretty much. These medical complications came in because he shot her. Everything goes back to the fact that correct. he shot her. Correct. Correct. And, um, you know, there there weren't any. I did look, and there weren't any documents. I would have liked to have seen... Uh, there likely would have been a motion for summary judgment filed on behalf of the doctor in the hospital. And I would have liked to have read that because that would have contained and the, the plaintiff's um, opposition because those would have contained the uh, facts about the medical condition and treatment and probably more information about what went, went wrong and how it went wrong. But they they didn't have any of that stuff online, so I wasn't able to get that. And um, right, but it's still again without medical treatment, Denise would not have survived without medical treatment. As I said a little while ago, if they had been in the bedroom, and Denise had not been able to get herself outside the apartment. I don't know if she would have survived. Yeah. You know, if she'd been lying on the floor in the bedroom or tried to get to the front of the apartment and collapsed, she would have died right there too. Yeah. So she wouldn't have survived without any medical intervention. Yeah, I mean, she was probably going to die either way. Well, they it, had there not been a problem with her airway... Uh, they could have fixed the damage. Right. She would have been right. in for a long, a long haul as far as recovery and rehabilitation. But, um, you know, she, she likely had, they had the airway stayed, but again, I, I personally, based on everything that I've read, the airway problem very well could have been just a complication of, of the type of injury that she had. Mm-hmm. And it right. could have been the result of her, you know, she may have, she may have been, you know, sitting up and her, you know, she was bleeding heavily and that wasn't going to be able to stop until surgery. And she may have coughed because Mm -hmm. she, you know, accidentally swallowed some blood. Right. And may have started coughing. And and coughing can dislodge an airway. Because when an airway is being removed, that is what they tell you to do while they're removing it, is to cough. Yeah, it makes sense. Um. Or it just could be, I mean, it's very uncomfortable having anything in your nose. And she could, uh-huh. she might have just, you know, been, you know, a little out of it and felt something in her nose and pulled it. But again, she, she shouldn't have been alone. And perhaps should have been a little bit more heavily sedated than she was. Uh-huh. Because they were getting ready to do surgery. But... 
there are a lot of different things that could have happened. And I think that's another thing that the, another problem for Chucky is that he can only speculate as to what happened and why it happened. That there are other reasonable, plausible explanations that aren't medical negligence. Mm-hmm. Like I said, if she just started coughing, that could have dislodged the airway. Yeah. And by that point, she needed the airway. Initially, when she first got to the hospital, she was breathing well on her own. She was sitting up. She couldn't lie down. She had to remain sitting up, but she was breathing well on her own and was, you know, was working oxygen pretty well. But as the as the hours passed, that that could have deteriorated, which often happens, especially with you know with this type of injury and just the shock to the body. So, mm-hmm. um, but it, that was all, you know, that was all he really had. He couldn't he couldn't say he went there to get clothes for work. And Darren pulled a knife on him because Diane Zernia pretty much squashed that whole line of defense for them. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the jury did convict him of capital murder of both Darren and Denise. And then the sentencing, that's when the murder for hire plot excuse me, against Diane came in. Yeah. As well as all of Thompson's juvenile and adult criminal histories, which were pretty extensive, and so he right. was sentenced to death uh, on, you know, basically in Texas. One of the questions is, do you find that he's a, fu- a future danger? And their answer to that was a resounding yes. And they um, say likely, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. So um, that was. That was the end of his trial. He did appeal uh, to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, which is automatic. And he basically challenged the sufficiency of the evidence as to Denise's cause of death and alleged that her her death was caused not by his actions but by medical negligence. Um, The Court of Appeal did not find that either of those arguments had any merit whatsoever Um, Mm -hmm. because basically his action of shooting her in the face at point blank range uh, was not less than whatever mistake the doctors had made and I don't think he ever proved what they did wrong and why it was wrong and how it caused Denise's death Mm-hmm. And then he challenged um, the failure to give, <clears throat> excuse me, um, the failure to give jury, certain jury charges on um, the lesser included offenses. Okay. And he also, but lesser included offenses are based on whether the evidence presented at the trial 
by either the state or the defense is sufficient to prove a lesser included offense. If you know, if you have a case, for example, in a capital murder case where you have evidence of premeditation and it's unrefuted, you can't get a lesser like a second degree murder instruction. Right. Because that evidence of premeditation, it can't be second second degree murder. Mm-hmm. The only way you can get the second degree murder instruction is if there is no evidence or the defense is able to refute the state's evidence of premeditation. Okay. <clears throat> so he wasn't happy about the, the lesser included offenses. And then right. he also, finally, he did raise an issue on his uh, denial of his right to counsel because when the agent came in to talk to him about the uh, murder for hire case, the Texas Sheriff's Office, the Harris County Sheriff's Office, did not notify Thompson's attorney, and he was represented by an attorney. And even though they do have a right to investigate new crimes, the uh, the Court of Appeal felt that um, there was kind of a, a gray line between the new crime and the crimes with it, which he was charged. And the denial of his right to counsel, that evidence uh, of the murder for hire plot may have adversely affected the jury in sentencing. Right. And so they did grant they were they affirmed his conviction, but vacated his sentence and ordered him to be retried. So that's where we get to the sentencing retrial. Correct. And in the intervening time between the granting of the new sentencing hearing and the re- rehearing or retrial, the uh, family medical the family's medical malpractice claim did make its way through the court and went to trial, and a jury found no negligence on the part of the doctor. <coughs> so okay. uh, that. That was a verdict. It was a verdict in favor of the defendant in the medical malpractice case, which leads me <clears throat> to suspect that whatever went wrong with the airway, it had nothing to do with her being alone, and it had nothing to do with anything the doctors did or didn't do, that it was something you know, something outside their control. Um, But I can't, I can only speculate as to what that might have been. Okay. Um, So, and, you know, yeah, I mean, loss of oxygen to the brain, I think it's like four minutes. You have four minutes and then the, the damage becomes irreversible. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a very small window. 
and like I said, had somebody been with her, observing her, but anybody who's been even in a hospital ER knows they they can't they don't have they don't have enough personnel mm-hmm. to you know sit with every patient. Um, now it would have been although they were getting her ready for surgery, they probably moved her to the surgical area by that time. Um, so they could you know she couldn't have a family member with her to alert anybody when she was initially in distress. So, right. Like, so the the sensing well, retrial happened. Oh, you want to you want to go ahead and. Yeah, I was going to say, before we get into the sentencing retrial, let's go ahead and take a break and then uh, move on from there. All right. All righty. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Then check out the guys at Sub On Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub On Vapors, located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub On Vapors. Vape it like you built it. got to gather my cord up so the door doesn't catch me again. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it caught me when I was trying to go outside. 
So, all right, so we're at the sentencing retrial. Yes, ma'am. So they go back to Harris County, and he's being held in the jail instead of Polanski Unit or Polanski Unit or whatever it's called. And um, they do the retrial. He gets new attorneys, and they start developing the mitigation case and uh, trying to get him a life sentence instead of a death sentence. And uh, unfortunately, a witness who did not testify in the first sentencing hearing was able to testify in the second sentencing hearing. So the whole plot against Diane Zarnia gets in without the undercover agent's testimony, which is very interesting. Now, right. I it, the informant had come forward prior to the original trial in 1998 or 1999, but because they had the undercover and the tapes, they didn't use him. Right, right. But uh, Thompson had tried to get him to kill Diane Zernia. Mhm. So that came in, and the juror, the the young lady juror, I think the the gentleman, the older gentleman, who was playing the tape about Diane Zarnia, I think right. he was a juror in the original trial. Yes, yes, he was. And, and then the, the young lady was in the retrial, and so. Right. He was sentenced to death again, uh-huh. and um, after he was sentenced to death, it was in November of 2005. The death sentence, I think, was toward the end of October. He was still in Harris County Jail waiting to be transferred to death, back to death row, and yeah, he managed to uh, he managed to keep a set of his street clothes that he had worn in court. And he got those put into one of the booths that is used for attorney visits to clients. He was talking to an attorney who did not represent him, and that is very interesting, but not a lot has ever been developed about it. And once that visit was over, he had obtained a handcuff key from we don't know where or how, but he's very resourceful. And he unlocked his handcuffs. He changed into those street clothes. He had a fake ID that identified him as an employee of the Department of Criminal Justice or Texas Department of Criminal Justice. So he walks out of jail. Um, he was challenged at one point, and he just put him off and said he had somebody waiting outside for him. He had to go. And they let him go. Wow. Just wow. So um, there were one one of the 
gentleman, one of the jailers did retire soon after that in lieu of discipline, and another jailer was fired. Um, They were two of the people that were in contact with Thompson and should have figured out that he was not legitimate and should have prevented him escaping. But uh, I think if somebody on there said, you know, there are two more victims for Charles Thompson. So, and I agree, you know, he fooled them. Right. And, um, but it it really, uh, they were never, they never found who got him the key or how he got the key, and they never found who got him the, the fake ID or how he got the fake ID. So nobody was ever charged. Uh, as he, you know, as he said, he hopped on a train and headed east, and he ended up in Shreveport, Louisiana, but he was, um, he was fond of the drink. And so he got drunk outside a liquor store. Right. And was basically on the phone outside the liquor store, and the guy in the liquor store recognized him and called and said, he's here. He was on an FBI 10 moist wanted list for four whole days. And, um, you know, that was where, where Denise Hayslip's son said, you know, he, he, he's stupid. You get out and then you go get drunk and you get caught. I mean, how dumb can you be? I know, right? And like, he's entirely wow. right. You, uh-huh. you would think, number one, he would try to be as low as possible, like just mm-hmm. special. Special. Yeah, he's a special kind of stupid. But, um, yeah, he uh, he really, first of all, he shouldn't have headed east. He should have headed south. Yeah. Like, gone to Brownsville, gone across to Matamoros, and been in Mexico. Yep. But, so, um, he was returned to custody and eventually transferred back to the Polanski unit. And then began the direct appeal because he gets another one after his sentencing hearing or sentencing trial. And the issues that he raised in that appeal were that the evidence of future dangerous was not sufficient um, that he had a state and federal right to a jury trial, to have the same jury distra- decide guilt and innocence as well as his sentence. In other words, according to Charles Thompson or his lawyers, uh, when you have to resentence a, a person, they also get a whole new guilt or innocence phase as well, automatically because they think the Constitution says so. Um, And then he also uh, alleged that the indictment was deficient because the special issues for capital murder were not detailed in the indictment. 
and then an improper closing argument by the state, uh, improper victim impact testimony was used, and he made a challenge to lethal injection. The Court of Criminal Appeals uh, affirmed the new sentence and found none of his challenges had any merit, or none of the issues that he raised had any merit. So then we go into the state post-conviction claims. While his direct appeal was pending, he filed an initial state post-conviction application, raising some issues, and then continued on with his direct appeal. He was resentenced and then appealed that. And once that concluded, he filed additional state post-conviction challenges. And there were a lot. <laughs> um, yeah. <clears throat> he, uh, he raised issues regarding the state habeas procedure in Texas because the time limits sometimes require an inmate to file a state post-conviction claim while their direct appeal is pending. It also requires some issues or allow some issues to be raised on direct appeal. And so if they're not raised on direct appeal and you try to raise them in state post-conviction, you can't raise them because you should have raised them on direct appeal. Um, And then he also alleged that there was insufficient evidence of uh, capital murder because Denise didn't die from the gunshot wound. It was medical malpractice. Uh, He challenged the constitutionality of uh, Texas Penal Code 6.04. I don't remember what that dealt with right now. And then he challenged the failure to include some some of the lesser included offenses that would have allowed the jury to convict him of something other than capital murder. Um, He challenged the extraneous offenses used at punishment That was where Denise's former roommate testified about Thompson's possessiveness, violence, knocking holes in walls, breaking things, and abusing Denise. Um, And that one is interesting because her, her testimony was based on what she witnessed and observed, not based on Denise saying he was arrested for something, that he was never convicted of and right. that that was proper testimony because uh, the state is entitled to put on evidence of the relationship between the accused and the victim in any criminal case. So, um, and then he also raised numerous uh, allegations of ineffective assistance counsel, uh, their general representation of him, their performance of on voir dire and related to asking jurors whether they understood that in Texas, if you're sentenced to life, you have to serve 35 years before you're eligible for parole. Mm-hmm. Um, and questioning jurors about how they would uh, look at victim impact testimony. Um, and is the attorney's failure to challenge two jurors, one who was 
married to an employee of the district attorney's office or been married to an employee of the district attorney's office who knew one of the prosecutors trying the case. And then um, they also, uh, he alleged that they failed to preserve some of the errors that occurred at the trial by not objecting. And that was basically because there were some things that he challenged from his first trial, from the guilt-innocence phase, that the Court of Criminal Appeals said he didn't object at trial. So the error wasn't preserved. And um, again, raising the extraneous offenses being used at guilt or innocence, again, that was the testimony regarding the relationship between Chucky and Denise, which, you know, the state was entitled to put on. Uh, And challenges to, they failed to challenge the state's improper argument, failed to uh, give the court lesser included uh, jury charges on lesser included offenses, and then that the errors, the cumulative error argument is that even if none of these errors are harmful by themselves, altogether they're harmful. When you look at them as one, uh, they're right. harmful, and and I should get a new trial. And then he also made challenges to lethal injection, uh, failure of the court to grant a continuance on the second rehear- the second punishment um, to uh, allow for certain expert testing to be done, and then. He raised a Brady violation as to the informant who testified about the plot against Cyanzernia. He raised uh, a challenge to the youthful misconduct evidence. Uh, This was a juvenile criminal record being used during the punishment phase. And then um, there was a due process violation because the jury was not properly instructed on the burden of proof for mitigation evidence and um, uh, the the jury was not properly instructed on punishment and then he raised ineffective assistance of appellate counsel. The trial court denied each and every one of those challenges and uh, there were one or two that were actually errors that occurred during the first sentencing, which the court essentially said the first sentencing was vacated. So any errors that happened in that stage, you can't get, you know, you can't get relief based on those errors because that conviction has already been vacated or that sentence has already been vacated. And then um, he filed in federal court But there were some claims that he did not raise, and he had to go back to state court and try to raise them. He raised uh, additional Brady violation claims as to the informant, uh, additional ineffective assistance of counsel claims related to the informant's uh, testimony and investigation of the informant. And then also he raised a right to counsel claim based on the argument that the 
<clears throat> the evidence from the tape about the weapon led to the discovery of the weapon. And so the weapon should have been uh, the the, the attorney should have had the weapon excluded from trial. Ah. Okay. And those were uh, those were denied because he didn't meet the criteria of the Texas post conviction statute to raise those additional claims, those successive claims. He's had his bite at the apple on federal, on state habeas, and he didn't present sufficient evidence to support those claims. So he was denied. So then he goes into federal court, and right. he raised, you know, uh, most of the issues he raised in state court, either on direct appeal or uh, state post conviction, he also raised in the federal habeas court and his right, federal habeas claim. I know we've mentioned and I'm not before, gonna go but what, here's one of those, let's throw something at the wall and see what sticks type of situations. Correct. That is exactly what it is. It's, it's, let's, let's, it's a shotgun. I have a friend of mine used to call it the shotgun approach. Perfect. And I've heard it called the spaghetti approach. Throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. And so um, the federal court denied habeas relief and found that none of his claims, none of Chucky's claims, uh, had any merit to them. Uh, The federal court also denied a hearing on his claims. He, of course, filed a request for a certificate of appealability in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals because under AEDPA, uh, that's a um, EDPA, um, uh-huh. is what you hear people calling it, which was enacted under Bill Clinton in, I think, 1996 or maybe 1998. Um Right. You you don't have an automatic appeal. A state prisoner seeking relief from federal court on a writ of habeas corpus does not have an automatic right to appeal. Either the district court has to grant a certificate of appealability on issues raised that reasonable jurists could debate. Right. And if the district court doesn't grant a certificate of appealability, which I believe the district court did not grant him a certificate of appealability on any issues, then he can ask the federal Mm -hmm. uh, to grant a certificate of appealability. And um, he presented those issues to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal did grant a certificate of appealability on the Brady and right to counsel claims related to the informant because basically Thompson's claim is that the informant was a 
career informant for the Houston Harris County uh, authorities. Right. And he claims that the informant was actually directed to gather information from him. Mm-hmm. And that was concealed by the district attorney. Mm-hmm. And the nature of the relationship was concealed by the district attorney. And also the informant's gathering of that information violated his right to counsel because he had invoked his right to counsel. Okay. And that was why the initial, the first sentencing was vacated because the uh, undercover agent talking to him was a violation of his right to counsel. It kind of it, it kind of treaded that thin line, mm-hmm. and so they did grant the COA. What he has to prove, first of all, he has to prove that the informant was a paid informant. Right. At the time of his um, incarceration, at the time the informant got the information from him. Uh, and then he's also going to have to prove that the informant's testimony had an, uh, a harmful effect on his trial. Okay. Which technically... You know, well, he's, he's going to... He's basically going to have to form and prove that the information about the, the informant was material to his defense. Mm. And based on what I read in the federal district court, I don't think he's going to be able to do that. Okay. Because... Um, they had a, the federal district court had a, I think it was like a 78 or 90 page opinion. It was pretty long, whatever it was. And, you know, the, the federal judge went through the chronology and the history and also what what the testimony was at trial and the evidence developed by the defense at the trial. Right. So, but, and basically the, the fifth circuit's only saying he has the right to file an appeal to have us look at this issue and look at the evidence and decide whether or not there was a violation. Okay. Okay. So, is that where we're at right now? We're still waiting to see what the uh, formality yes. is on this? The, um, the COA was granted yesterday. So, mm-hmm. you being sick last week and us having to take the week off was actually kind of a good thing. Yay! <laughs> because this came down yesterday, and if we'd done the show last week, um, then we wouldn't we wouldn't have been able to talk about this while we were talking about Chucky's case. We would have had to talk about it when we update when we do the updates. So it was a good thing. 
And um, so, the uh, his his initial brief is going to be due on April first. They will probably get at least one extension on their initial brief. So we mm-hmm. we may not really see briefing until the summertime. So one thing I want to throw out there, coming off this mm-hmm. case now that we've got to the end of it, one thing I want to throw out there, for everybody that says Texas has got a fast lane to killing folks, yeah, this dude's been on death row for what now, about 20 years? 21. 21 no, well, years. No, yes. it is, no, it is. No, it'll be 20 years. In April, because he was convicted okay. in April of ninety nine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's twenty years. Anybody says that Texas doesn't take their time needs to look at this case. Right. And you know that's another thing, and and that's one of the reasons um, I want to do this show because so many podcasts that I listen to, they act like you know four federal habeas appeals and six Texas state court post-conviction appeals are are not enough. And it's like that's a due process. True, true. But then they argue there, there's no due process. And it's kind of um, a lot of the opinions are outcome-based. If he makes an appeal and he it isn't granted, then the system is unfair. Woe is me. Even though not granting not granting relief is not because the system is unfair, but because he did not prove that his rights were violated, that he did not prove that he had an unfair trial, that he did not prove there were trial errors. So... Um, but this and this is an example of, like I said, due process, and he's getting his due process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it certainly sounds like it. I mean, good lord, no, now, Lord knows. I mean, this isn't the norm for Texas. I will say that Texas, and there, there's been people that have been put on death row later than him. You know, since he's been on there, that have been put to death, but still. Anybody that says Texas don't take their time and do their due process, this is a pretty good indication that they do. Right, but but some of the people that were that went later who have been executed, that may simply be because their state post conviction and federal post conviction claims did not take long to resolve. And right, so they right. were they were they were out of of uh, of claims. Mm-hmm. But then we've got mm-hmm. you know the Rodney Reeds and Larry Swearingens and the Hank Skinners, who mm-hmm. just you know every time every time they lose they they bring something else out of their back pockets and and start the whole process all over again, only to ultimately lose. You are so, right about that. You are right about that. Or not lose, well, but just fail. Right. Right. True. Well, Lisa, it looks like we got a season finale coming up next week. 
Yes, we do. We're gonna uh, we're gonna do an update. It's gonna be episode thirty nine, and that's gonna end our first season. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're gonna do is just update. There's been a lot of a lot of new information and new developments and cases that we've looked at over the last year. So we're going to take mm-hmm. some time. We're going to go through the, some of those new developments and um, okay. talk about some of the things we're going to do for season two. And since privately it's not working to ask you privately, publicly for everybody <laughs> out there, Michael needs to do his homework and send me a list of cases that he wants to look at because I think 98% hey, I of the cases we material. looked at. <laughs> yeah, in one person. In one person. In one case. <laughs> for everybody want, that doesn't want know more that. covering Ed, Edwards here for too long, and I, I came up with that one, so uh, I'd like yes, my, you did. I'd like my... I'd like my praise for that one. <laughs> yes, no, uh, you did, you did, but I, I think I'll when when the, I look uh, at the list, on that one. well, it's it's going to be a little while because I'm yeah, I'm, I'm sure, right now I'm reading Cameron's, I'm reading Cameron's book. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to read Edwards's book. Oh yeah, I forgot Edwards wrote a book. For those that don't right. know, we're referring to uh, the book by James Cameron. You can actually go back to John the Cameron. archives. We, or John Cameron, excuse me. You can go back in the archives where we actually interviewed him, but the book's called it was, It's Me, The Killer You've Never Heard Of. Uh, and I think there's like a uh, semi-title, it, The Edward Wayne Edwards Story or something like that. Right. But... So I, I've got to finish that. But in looking at the list of cases, I think 98% were ones I came up with. So now oh, you yeah. did mention, we talked about it. You did mention Manson. And yeah, I do I want to do that. Manson especially. I want to talk about the Black Dahlia thing. I know we have talked about, I believe we've talked about Black Dahlia, haven't we? No, I don't think we ever did. I definitely want to talk about the Black Dahlia aspect of it and uh, definitely also Morgan Nick and uh, and I always forget which one it is, but I think his name's John Walsh. The America's Most Wanted. Uh, okay, yeah, Adam Walsh. Yeah, I know one of them's an, a uh, political... Uh, activist, so I'll try to remember which one's which, but it's either John or Jim or something like that. But yeah, his son Adam. I want to look at that aspect of it as well. And th- I mean, there's a couple more that I'm sure would probably interest everybody. Like they obviously he said something about West Memphis three, but you know we've already co- covered that case, like you had said. Yeah. So I think uh, that one's better left. Uh, that one's better left. We could probably discredit that. And, I mean, you did when we were talking in private on Facebook. You pretty much discredited that in about five minutes over Facebook Messenger. So <laughs> stay tuned, ladies right. and gentlemen. We're going to be poking holes in theories. <laughs> so, but it's going to be a little while. And you said Morgan Nick? Yes. 
or not more than Nick, uh, John Benet Ramsey. John Benet Ramsey. Okay, those are all. Yeah. Okay, John Benet. I, see, one thing, Adam Walsh, uh, Black Dahlia, John Benet. My only problem is that mm-hmm. these cases did not have an identified suspect who was arrested, charged, tried, and convicted. Mm-hmm. So my primary sources uh, are not going to be available. Okay. Now, well, that- I may be able to find some of the original, as far as Adam Walsh, I, I may be able to find some original police documents online, but well, and definitely um, one thing. One thing I want to mention: we can do a lot of this from just you know possibly poking holes in the Ed Edwards thing, just right. uh, based on the uh, cases and what have you. Because another one I just now thought about that I had told you about too was I want to poke holes in the fact that he's the Zodiac killer too, because he was. He, yeah. Lord, Lord, if y'all haven't read this book, he was blamed for every crime since America's been alive. Uh, yeah, there are a couple more that I'm surprised uh, that um, that uh, Mr. Cameron did not try to pin on him. I'm surprised he didn't yeah. try to pin Tate and LaBianca on him. Oh, I'm surprised that 9-11 wasn't at Edwards, too. <laughs> I mean, honestly, ladies and gentlemen, it sounds like we're joking, but there's what? I think me and Brad figured it up. I think it's like a 60-year period from the time his first crime was legitimately we know he committed a crime to, I think, West Memphis 3 is where we stopped off at. And I think it was like a 60-year period that this dude would have had to have been committing oh. pretty infamous crimes. I don't I I don't know. I thought Cameron also talked about Lacey Peterson and Teresa Hallbach. You're right. He did. I forgot about those two. So, he was 72 folks and he killed Lacey Peterson and Teresa Hallbach. Hey, at 72. I mean, using a cane. A he was using a cane. He was overweight. He oh, had diabetes. He was, also, he was also a movie star. Well, yeah, that that's another one. I'm just going to come right out there and say it. Cameron doesn't know what he's talking about on that. He did not. That is not Edward Wayne Edwards in Paradise Lost. Edward Wayne Edwards did not ingratiate himself with Doug Cooper from mm-hmm. the production company. Okay. Okay. That is crazy conspiracy theory. I'm reading John Cameron's book, uh-huh. and my problem with it is that he is giving state of mind and dialogue for Edwards in situations in which he was not present. So he does not know well, what Ed Edwards was thinking or saying to anyone. Well, one thing I want to ask you, though, is he said he spent a lot of time with Edwards uh, interviewing him and things like that after he did the Lover Lane, Lover's Lane murders 
in uh, and I forget where he's from, but he's in one of the northern in Montana, northern west states, Montana. Yeah, Great Falls, Montana. Uh, he said, yeah. He said he spent a lot of time with Edwards before he passed, and said that you know Edwards confessed to a lot of these. Uh, well, but you know the problem I have first of all is that even Cameron says. Edwards was a con man first and foremost. And Edward sure. want Edwards wanted notoriety first and foremost. Very you true. do not have to actually go out and commit these crimes. All you have to do is claim responsibility for them. Yeah. True. And another true. another flaw, big, 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 big flaw in his theory is mm-hmm. if Edward Wayne Edwards liked to commit a crime and frame someone as Cameron mm-hmm. claimed, then right. why what he are Adam Walsh, Black Dahlia, John Brene Ramsey, why are these still unsolved cases? Because he True. did not and frame anyone. Zodiac when you think about it. Cause Zodiac and Zodiac. Yeah, Zodiac doesn't really fit that uh, fit that aspect either because really Zodiac was taunting the police and begging them to catch him almost. Yeah, huh. and um, you know I got one thing I do have to say I, I I read it I read part of Metamorphosis during that period in the winter between at winter forty six forty seven. Which um, mm-hmm. Black Dahlia was Her body was found January 15th 1947 She was last seen on January 9th 1947 mm-hmm. In Metamorphosis Edward Wayne Ed- Edwards Was working on a dairy farm That he had been paroled to From the youth reformatory He was not in Los mm-hmm. Angeles, California and, you know, okay. Okay, Black Dahlia, I'm going to put it out there. First of all, I don't see 22-year-old Elizabeth Short relying on 13-year-old for anything. Very true. Elizabeth Short liked servicemen. She liked pilots. Mm-hmm. And she was looking to marry a pilot. Mm-hmm. 13-year-old kid from Ohio. I'd like to know how he got from Ohio to Los Angeles. Very true. Cameron never once explains that. Well, and Cameron constantly um, said that he was touring the country committing these these infamous murders while he was on this book tour. Like, I remember him saying that specifically. You know, he'd walk up to the cop and kind of give him a knowing smile, knowing that he was the person they were looking for. And he'd hand him a copy of the book. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but that's, so, uh, you know, like I said, John Cameron, John Cameron is talking about state of mind and what mm-hmm. Edwards knew or what his thought processes were. He wasn't there. And sure. so far in the book, he's not attributing any of this to an interview he did with Edward Edwards. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like he's making this up out of whole cloth. And 
Another thing, he, he claims Ed Edwards was BlackValueSolution.com or .org or whatever. But if you look at the About tab on that page, the person who who started that page, who came up with that theory, is a guy by the name of Khan, K-O-H-N-E, who was born and raised in Los Angeles. And another problem with John Cameron's theory, based on that Internet source, is that mm-hmm. in that in that thing, Ed Burns, who he claims was Ed Edwards, mm-hmm. if you read that, you really read it, Ed Burns commits suicide in March of 1947, two months after murdering Elizabeth Short. Hmm. So it it sounds like John Cameron, as far as the Black Dahlia theory, is just cherry picking and okay. speculating. There's no evidence, and and if you if you have Amazon Prime, even if you don't go to Amazon.com, it was me, which is the six part documentary that was aired on, um, or it was him that was aired on the Paramount Network where mm-hmm. he goes with uh, Edward's grandson, Wayne Wolf. Watch that. Oh, darn. I didn't know that he had one of those. Okay. Watch that. It's on. You can watch it on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he, he went through, I'm going to, I'm going to probably, uh, after Mardi Gras, I'm not even going to start planning on this until way after my. I'm going to the Bacchus Ball. I'm meeting Jensen Ackles. Um, Thank you. I'm really excited about that. I'm going to meet the Clyde, the Budweiser Clydesdales tomorrow. Uh oh. And I'm going to see the NOPD mounted horses tomorrow. So I'm really excited about that. <laughs> And it's going to be something. So if you can come up with cases not related to Ed Edwards. Well, I mean, what um, like, I was thinking about just off the top of my head while we were talking about uh, Ed Edwards and infamous cases, we haven't done Manson yet, have we? No, we haven't. And I do want to do that. I was thinking about that one. That one would be a good one. But uh, there's and a then couple. Another a couple one, you... You shared something regarding Stacy Castor, the woman who poisoned her two husbands and tried to uh-huh. poison her daughter so that her daughter could be blamed. Uh-huh. I would really like for us to do that one because that is a purely circumstantial case. Okay. Okay, yeah. So, um Maybe uh, after we after we talk to Megan Clement, and that's another thing for everybody listening that I'm really excited about. We're going to be talking to Megan Clement on Monday, March 4th, because we're mm-hmm. going to start doing our first show of the month. It's going to be on Monday instead of on Tuesday, because Michael has something with ASWF. <laughs> Yeah, that's going to be happening on the first Tuesday of every month. Which, if you're in hot, and, you're coming out. And 
So, so we're going to have our first show of the month will be on Monday instead of Tuesday. Um, for those of you out there, I love this show so much that I will be missing Dancing with the Stars. Oh my goodness, dancing with that—that I mean, that is a sacrifice. That tells everyone something. I in the really world enjoy of DVR, this. In the world of DVR, we don't have man, that is a sacrifice. We do not have a DVR. Um, I guess I can. I can do on demand. We do have on demand. I, and I probably <laughs> will end up doing on demand. But up until this time. Prior to me doing this show and doing Behind the Curtain, I would not miss Dancing with the Stars for anything. Okay. I had to be home at 7 o'clock on Monday night to see, and I I don't want to watch it on demand. I wanted to watch it live as it happened. Ah. Did you vote for this? Did you vote? Yeah, I, I, I vote, yeah. <laughs> I see, that's what I think I'm probably not going to be able to do because I'm not going to be able to watch it on demand after I get off the air Monday. But um, that's sure, okay. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I, what I may do is just pick the people I like and never see how they dance. I just vote for them. <laughs> I was about to say. <laughs> I, I know you're not supposed to do it that way, but... It'll all be okay until your favorite gets voted off the first week we the first week we mm-hmm. do it in Monday episode. No, no. This this show and, and the time I spend with you is worth it. Awesome. Well definitely I enjoy so, spending time with you, Miss Lisa, but so, uh any idea anyway, we, which faces uh we're gonna be updating next week? Well, yeah, I can give you a, a brief idea. I know that there have been developed developments in Jeffrey McDonald, Rodney Reed, mm-hmm. Larry Swearingen, Adnan Syed, Stephen Avery, and Brendan Dat. Well, Stephen Avery, um, and Dahlia DiPolito. You know Those what? Are the only six right Rodney off Reed my head that I. You know what's that? What's Rodney that? Reed was in my. No way, Rodney Reed's Texas. Never mind. I was yeah. about to say Rodney Reed was in my state, and I didn't even know about it. But yeah, Rodney Reed was Texas. I'm Rodney Reed's in Texas. Yeah, and I want to. I want to continue. I I kind of went on a tangent. We're going to be interviewing uh-huh. Megan Clement. She is a uh-huh. DNA expert, and we're going to be learning about DNA evidence and um, the different aspects about DNA evidence. Uh, talking to her about that and learning from her about that. And, you know, we're going to talk about what affects collection of DNA, how the testing methods have improved, what it takes to test DNA, what the process is, uh, what the statistics mean. Uh, We'll probably learn something about the different databases from which they get the population estimates that they use to uh, uh, predict frequency of a, a specific DNA profile in the general, in the population of the world. And so that's going to be, it's, I think it's going to be a really, really interesting show. And she has, 
she she's been uh, she was at LabCorp, she was at Bode Technologies. She's now with her uh, Clement Consulting. She's worked for uh-huh. New, Me- New Mexico State Police Crime Lab. Um, she's a criminalist. She's a you know bio- uh, I think biology was her major. Uh, she's taught forensics. She's got a forensic science degree. Um, so I mean, it, it's going to be really interesting. I was looking at her her CV today, and I mm-hmm. I was looking. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, she's worked for every just about every lab <laughs> that you hear about right. with, with these different criminal cases. And um, she worked for a state crime lab in New Mexico. Okay. Okay. So it's it's going to well, be a really be. really I, interesting I, I show. I have been looking forward to that. I have been looking yeah. forward to that. But Lisa, let's go ahead and put a bow on this thing and get on out of here. Dinner's waiting. <laughs> All righty. Thank you for listening, Clear and Convincing, with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com. Or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien LN. Join us next week for the final episode of Season 1 of Clear and Convincing on Tuesday, February 26, 2019 at 8 p.m. Central. Uh, we're going to be talking about the new developments and information in some of the cases that we covered during Season 1 and what you can look forward to during Season 2. Until then, have a great week. Stay safe. Good night. <clears throat> <clears throat>